today. Thank you for those with young children uh, for being flexible today because, as you probably heard, the nursery was flooded last night. And uh, Ian said part of this room was also had some water in it that they had to kind of deal with earlier today. So thank uh, Ian and Zach and others for helping with all that. So nursery during the service will be uh, in the side rooms here in this building. And then uh, for right now, the kids, some of the kids will be with us. So this will be good. So thank you. Thank you guys for, for being flexible with all of that. We are uh, starting the, the, uh, the tulip today officially. So we did an introduction last Sunday. And today we're going to start with the tea, which is Total depravity. You know it's going to be an uplifting message when, when, when we're talking about total depravity for the next couple of weeks. So um, we, a whole lot to talk about here. Um, Greg, could you open us in prayer? And then uh, we've got uh, some points we'd like to walk through together. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to consider these great subjects, Lord, which in reality are just a reflection of what is in your word. And so we pray for clarity. We pray for insight. We pray for wisdom. Uh, Lord, to be able to make sense of what your word says and to do it faithfully and rightly. Lord, as, as Paul said to Timothy, we want to accurately handle the word of truth, uh, that we'd be workers who have no need to be ashamed and that those who hear and learn would have no need to be ashamed of what they've heard and learned. Uh, Lord, so please just be with us in a special way as we consider this doctrine of total depravity. Uh, Lord, how sin has affected us. Uh, Lord, uh, it's a humbling subject. It's uh, one that brings us low. But I pray, Lord, we'd leave with a greater sense of your greatness and holiness and our need of Christ. And also, Lord, help us be submissive to the text of Scripture. God, above all, it is your word that teaches us about this. And uh, Lord, we want to be faithful to that above all. So Lord, just guide and direct uh, through the teaching today and help us all uh, draw near to you uh, with more informed hearts and minds, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If, if you have a Bible, just turn with us for a moment to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. As you are turning there, I know that you have heard, uh, Scott in particular has, has told a lot of stories from the great Christian George Mueller. Do you all remember some stories from George Mueller? He was the one that ran the orphanages, uh, and uh, he never asked for support. He was always praying, and he had dramatic answers to his prayers over the years, and was just a faithful man of prayer. The stories about his prayers being answered, they sound fictitious, but they are not. They're, they're, they're unbelievable uh, stories. So I wanted to begin with a quote from him, and it's on the screen here. I'll read through uh, as we go, and we'll show probably a few testimonials from famous Christians from the past on this issue, but here's what George Mueller said. He said, before this period... I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final uh, persevering grace, so much so that I called election a devilish doctrine. I did not believe that I had brought myself to the Lord, uh, for that was too manifestly false, but yet I held that I might have finally resisted. So he believed in resistible grace. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the Word of God being made willing to receive what the Scriptures said, I went to the Lord, reading the New Testament from the beginning, with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths, and even those few shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrines. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, so what effect did believing in predestination have on George Mueller? Had this effect. I am constrained to state, to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak, 
and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life as I might and as I ought to be. Yet by the grace of God, I have walked more closely with him since that period. My life has not been so variable, and you know, the ups and downs. My life has not been so variable, and I may say that I have lived much more for God than before, and for this I have been strengthened by the Lord in a great measure through the instrumentality of these truths. So, Jerry, just some opening comments before we dive into Genesis 6. Yeah, we, uh, for 22 years, as we've started Romans and gone right through it um, in school. So, August and September, I tell them every day in August and September, it's like, man, we got some bad news today because we're in chapters one through three of Romans, and it is nothing but bad news. But to me, and I don't know how to say this, but if you're a believer, you'll, I think, understand it. It is a thrilling doctrine, even the depravity of man, because as we understand it better, we just see how glorious the cross is, right? I I imagine if you or I had uh, cancer and went to the cancer doctor and the cancer doctor said, you've got a week, this is a death blow right here, what I'm seeing in you, and God miraculously healed us from that, all of a sudden, your ideas about it, it would still be devastating that you had cancer, but you would be so thrilled that God had miraculously healed you from that death blow. Well, I almost think it's the same with this, is when we understand just how deep depravity is and that every inclination of our heart was only evil all the time, we start to say, oh, the cross becomes really glorious. And Jesus becomes all the more amazing and glorious in the way we think about him just because we realize where we started. You know, if you owe somebody five bucks and they say, ah, you don't have to pay it, that's pretty neat because I don't really have five bucks right now. I have about three. But if you owe somebody 20,000 and they say, ah, that's all right. I'm going to forgive you for that debt. Then that's a bigger deal. But this is way, way bigger than that yet. And so, anyway, it, it becomes a really a glorious and thrilling doctrine, even though the news about us is really bad. And just to illustrate that even further, I saw a little video clip from, I don't know, this is a year or two ago, uh, some, I think it's East Idaho News, did this little Secret Santa thing. Some of you may have seen this on YouTube. And uh, someone donated like a million dollars, and they divvied it up and gave it to people who needed it, who were going through some really difficult times in East Idaho. It's not a Christian thing. It's just a kind of a secular news thing. But there's this one that just gets you when you watch it, because there's this teacher who'd been teaching at this school for however many years. You know, she's probably in her 50s, and, and uh, she'd been going through a really hard time in, in, her, in her life. And she, her car was basically broken down, and she had no money, and she wasn't able to do anything. And so they show up with the news cameras, and they walk into her class. There's a bunch of maybe third or fourth grade students like, what is going on? All these cameras are coming in the room. And they walk over and they have three little boxes to give the teacher. And the teacher goes, what are you guys doing in here? Like, this is, I don't need anything. Please don't. And they go, no, please. This is from a secret Santa. Open the first box. So they open the first box and it's like a thousand dollar check for this lady. And she starts to get emotional and her eyes sort of tear up. Well, guess what's in the second box? Keys to a new car. Do you think her reaction became more moved at the second box than the first box? $1,000 is amazing. But 
to be, she looks in and sees the car keys, and then she begins to, you almost think that she's about to start choking. She starts like, she starts like crying so deeply immediately that they, they put their hand on her, You're like, are you okay, kind of thing. She's like so choked up, and she goes outside, and she's overwhelmed by this car. Well, the, the more desperate our plight and the more wonderful the gift, mm-hmm. the more astonishing and amazing grace is. So you're right. It can be from one side extri- really discouraging to hear how depraved we are, but my goodness, what does it highlight? God's undeserved love and the cross and what God has done to save us and rescue us from ourselves. Thoughts on that, Greg? Well, when you hear total depravity, you almost want to think like you're overstating the case. Like you can't, can it really be that bad? Can we really be that sinful? Can we really be that corrupt? Um, And the answer is yes. And, And the language we use to describe this, the words that we use, like when you start to see what scripture says, you see we're not over-dramatizing this. Like we're simply explaining the text itself. And when we just let the text speak, it's amazing what the text has to say. And this is one of those doctrines we have to be careful with. Like we can actually apologize for the Bible. Like, Mm. oh, you know, we don't want to sound like we're, it's what God says. Like this is God's word. So it's God's voice. And therefore this is what God is saying. Uh, we don't want to apologize for God because God doesn't do wrong. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't over uh, overemphasize, underemphasize. He always does it just right. And so if in his word, God is saying certain things about the human condition, we need to be just as clear as the Bible is and unashamedly so. That's good. So if you just want a really simple, let's get right to the point. What are we talking about with the T and total depravity? Genesis 6-5 is as clear as anything in all of Scripture on this topic. Uh, Look with us there in Genesis 6, verse 5. This is right before the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. This is God's Word. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we're going to read that again here before we get uh, too far, but look, look at this one more time. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil when? All the time, continually. So this is what we mean by total depravity. Humanity from birth is not a mixture of good and bad deeds before God. It's not close where you know, wow, man, this person's so good naturally. They're they're almost, no, 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 no. Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil all the time. So is that total depravity? Yes. In other words, sin infects and affects everything. It, it, It has polluted every single intention of every thought of our heart, which means every motivation comes from sin. Uh, Romans says, whatever is not from faith is sin. So anything that's not coming from faith in Jesus Christ is coming from faith in something else or trust in something else, and therefore it is rotten to the core, even if it looks superficially virtuous. And so this is a devastating blow. Thoughts about this verse before we go any further? I think you could say, okay, what happened? So the flood maybe wiped out that evil, right? They weren't near so bad, uh, you know, once they they, they came out of there. But look at 821, you have to go two chapters and it's just that the news is no better. When the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again encourage the ground because a man, but look at the conditions not not change. For the intention of man's heart, it's evil from youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So it didn't change. 
right? They, he wiped them out, but that wasn't the end of, of the depravity. And uh, this is a great mirror to look at to say, boy, this is who I am apart from Christ. And, uh, and it's certainly not by itself. There's many that are just as devastating as this one. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's clear. Like, this, this is what God sees in us. Yeah. Um, like, even on our best days, we're corrupt. I mean, we just need to remind ourselves of that. Like, we could have, you know, the, the most godly, God-focused, whatever day that we could have, and it still is shot through with sinful corruption. And we just have to be honest about that. Um, and when you think about where, and as we, we look at this, you'll see, like, in, like you said, if anything points us to the, the need of a Savior, like it's this. I mean, if, if we understand ourselves rightly, we recognize there is not one thing in me that would ever compel God to save me. In fact, everything in me screams that God judge me and punish me for my sin. And if we don't understand that, we diminish our appreciation of the cross. Yep. R.C. Sproul says, man's will is free to follow his inclinations, but fallen man's inclinations are always and invariably away from God. So I think, don't you, let, reason with me in a second. I think it's our depravity that makes us not want to admit that we're this bad. You know, that, I think that just adds on to our case here, that it's because of this that I would rather say, whoo, that's a little bit too descriptive and, and probably taking it further than it is. I imagine it were 10 times worse than what we ever known. Yes, so we're, we're going to use a little bit of an outline borrowed from a guy named uh, Edwin H. Palmer, who wrote a book on, on the five points here. So th this, this skeletal outline we're borrowing from him. And uh, I thought it'd be helpful to start off with, with a couple of points like this. So what total depravity is not? I think it's important to say what it is not so that we can better understand what it is. So total depravity is not absolute depravity. And you say, what does that mean? This, does, this means this, people are not as bad as they could be. I mean, take the worst, I mean, take a Hitler-type figure. He didn't kill everybody he encountered. He kept his secretary alive, probably for evil purposes, right, so she could help him do evil. But like, even Hitler did not do as much evil as he could have done. Uh, no, nobody on earth has ever done as much evil as they are absolutely capable of doing. So we're not saying that, that um, we're, not, we're not believing in absolute depravity. People can be worse than they are. And by God's common grace, uh, we, we have restraining grace and our conscience that can keep us from certain acts of, of sinfulness. And it's also not a complete absence of relative good. Mm -hmm. What this means is you can find an unbelieving neighbor who lets you borrow something in a, in a moment of crisis. You can have an unbelieving neighbor who's very kind to you and helps you out. Maybe they mow your lawn for you while you're on vacation. I mean, you can have all kinds of examples of unbelieving people showing relative goodness. You have unbelieving parents who sacrifice for their children. You have unbelieving parents who might work hard when no one's looking at work or something like that. All, we're not denying that. There, there is such a thing as relative goodness. People can be generous. They can write checks for people in need from unbeliever to unbeliever. I mean, that's, that happens regularly. What we're saying is, although there can be outward relative goodness, the motives are never God-glorifying until the new birth occurs. They so, don't ever on purpose glorify God is what you're right, saying, right? Right. So I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that, that's good. So th thoughts on this, it's, it's not absolute depravity. It's also not complete absence of relative good. Makes yeah, me... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you first. Uh, no, none is righteous. No, not one. This is Romans 3.10. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, 
Not even one. And so there is a very clear from the New Testament now, just as clearly saying that, again, the unbeliever has a complete inability, no ability at all. And so Sproul, I mean, uh, Gershner, um, Elizabeth, I was thinking about him after you mentioned him, so I watched him a little bit. Gershner says, there's three ways to look at man. Okay, this is kind of Sproul's mentor. And he says, you can look at him that he's well. Well, if you look at him that he's well, then you're not even a believer. That's just liberal theology. That no, no true believers. Or you could say, well, man's just desperately sick. Well, you know, and he could fight and claw his way. If you threw a life preserver in the ocean, would you probably heard that illustration? He has enough ability to grab it. That's not biblical either. Man is dead. There he is dead in his transgressions and his sins. And I think these three verses, no one's right, just no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It just shows our deadness, our inability to bring God glory in any way, um, even through the relative nice things we're doing. They may be nice or good in comparison to other believers, right. but not with Christ's standard, which is perfection. Right. So let's look at the next couple slides. We'll spend more time on this, and Jerry's getting into some of these very things that we want to spend some time on. So what is total depravity? Define it positively. Uh, it is only and always sinning. Again, a couple of verses you could think of would be uh, Hebrews. I've got them here. I'm going to have a hard time trying to find all my verses. They're out of order. But uh, Hebrews uh, 11, I think it's verse 6, says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Mm-hmm. Without faith, without saving faith, it is impossible to please God. So if anyone does not have saving faith, which I didn't have for the first 15 years of my life, I was incapable of pleasing God. It doesn't mean I never obeyed my parents. It doesn't mean I never did anything right in school. I mean, I I did a lot of bad things, but I'm sure I obeyed. I did things. I was complimented at certain points. But guess what? It was not coming from faith in Christ. And therefore, it was fundamentally a bad motive, and it was fundamentally sinful even when it looked outwardly virtuous. So total depravity means we are all born only and always sinning until we are born again in Christ. We are dead in sin, which means we only sin. We always sin. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart are only evil all the time. So it's, we are only and always sinning until the moment of new birth. Um, also, too, you know, you think about total, and you, you referenced this in the previous slide, it's not like utter or absolute. What, you know, getting in this, it means there's no part of our existence that's unaffected by sin. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. when you think of, of you as a human being, there, there's no part of you that sin has not tainted in some way. That's why it's, it's total, like total in terms of, of you as a person, of me as a person. You know, I, there's nowhere we can say, oh, you know, this one aspect, um, you know, of my life is sin-free. Uh, sin has not touched this, whether it's reason, whether it's our will. You know, we, we can't ever locate an area in us that we can say is untouched by sin. And if it's touched by sin then it's corrupted. It's, it's got this principle of uh, this inclination away from God, this inclination toward what is evil, to, to hate what God loves and love what God hates. Um, that, that's pervasive across our human composition, if you will. Um, there's, you know, there, there's nowhere you can go in you where you can say, that is sin-free. An easy example would be if you have a big uh, glass jar full of a gallon of water and you take three drops of red food coloring and you put it in that red jar, guess what? 
It's total. It, it, all that water is going to turn red. There's not going to be a pocket of pure water in the midst of the red water. Mm -hmm. It's all going to turn red. So when, when Adam sinned as the federal head of the human race, Adam, remember, God did not create us this way. God created us perfect. It was very good. They were sinless. And when Adam, representing all of humanity, when he chose to, to follow even a sin at that moment, uh, it was as though the, the red food coloring of, of sin entered the human bloodstream. It entered, entered our DNA. And all of the human race is completely saturated by it. And that's why we desperately need a Savior from outside. This is why the virgin birth matters, because Jesus was born supernaturally outside of the lineage of Adam in that sense. Uh, and so by, by supernatural conception, Jesus was not born with the infection of sin. He was born sinless and was perfectly righteous. And he was able to come from without to rescue us from inside that red uh, jar of sin, that, that, that infection of sin. Yeah, that's good, Mark. And that's why we say we both are true. We're sinners because we sin and we sin because we're sinners. But the first is more accurate. We're sinners from time of conception, Psalm 51. And so, knowing that, that is why we sin. Are we sinners because we sin? Absolutely. But we sin because we're sinners, and we inherited that right from Adam. Yeah, so just on the screen here, we've got a very simple way of talking about this. What, what about free will, people will ask at this point, which is an appropriate question to ask, I think. Uh, do we have free will? And here's a simple way that we would try to answer that question. Yes, in a sense. Yes, we do have free will in a sense. Let's explain what we mean by that. We always choose what we are most inclined toward at the moment of decision. Now, I don't think that's even that hard to follow. I think that's pretty simple. Free will means you choose what you want, right? You're free to choose what you're most inclined toward, what you most desire in the moment of choice. So um, now we don't, we don't always follow our, our plans. We might say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a diet this month and I'm not gonna eat extra dessert. And then in the moment of 8.30 at night, you're looking at the ice cream in the freezer and you're going, you know what, I'm going to break my, what I said about, because, well, at that moment, you are still choosing your highest inclination. At the moment of choosing that dessert at 8.30, which you said you weren't going to do, at that moment, you are desiring the ice cream more than the diet, and so you always choose according to your highest inclination at the moment. I'll give a couple of illustrations. If I was 14 years old and my dad said, hey, take the push mower and go mow our lawn, which was a decent-sized lawn for a push mower, I would say, oh, man, Dad, I don't, I don't think I want to do that right now. I'm not, I'm not inclined to do that. I don't want to use my free will to do that right now. And my dad would say, okay, well, you can dishonor me, disobey, and be grounded, or you can mow the lawn. I said, Dad, nothing I would rather do than mow the lawn. I am so pleased right now. So what happens is, even if it's not something I would prefer on my own, I would rather mow the lawn than displease my dad and get in trouble, or maybe I'm really in a rebellious state of mind. I say, I don't care what the consequences are, dad. I'm not mowing the lawn. Whatever we choose, we always choose according to our highest inclination at the moment of decision. And I don't think that's that controversial or hard to follow. So that's how I would define free will. We always choose according to our highest inclination. Does that make sense? Now, here's the next question. However, what are we most inclined toward when we are dead in sin? What are we always? What, what did Genesis 6, 5 say? Every intention of the thoughts of the heart are only evil all the time. So yeah, you've got free will. You can choose whatever you want. And when you're dead in sin, what do you only want? Anything but Jesus, right? Anything but Jesus. It might be sports and relationships and the whole list of idols. We can choose those with all of our free might, with all of our free will. Our inclination loves the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the, 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 all those different things First John speaks of. But can our hearts incline towards Jesus for Jesus' sake? Not to use Jesus to get out of hell, not to use Jesus to get a miraculous meal of free food like John 6 we saw uh, on Thursday night. Uh, no, 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 no. 
Can I incline toward Jesus because he is preferable in his own glory to the glory of the things of this earth? And our answer would be, that is something that you are morally incapable of doing until you are born again. That's what being dead in sin means. That's what it means. It means that I am so in love with the things of this world, I am so in love with God's creation over the creator that my heart is unable morally to incline to prefer God's glory over other things. And so this is is a really important point to to make here, and I want to hear from you guys on this. I'll just put a verse on the screen here, uh, Romans 6 on the screen. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, you notice the phrase there? Who gets the credit for that transformation? God. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, only preferring sin with your free will, right? Always preferring sin means you're a slave to sin. Suddenly you become obedient from the heart. Where does that come from? Dead hearts don't prefer God. They don't. That's what it means to be dead in sin. You don't prefer God. You love the darkness rather than the light because your deeds were evil. And so what turns the corner is the supernatural regenerating work of God uh, in our heart, in our life. Th- thoughts on these things? Well, I'll say this is Ephesians 2 uh, to get a, a yeah, corollary let's, text. Let's turn there. Let's yeah, turn Ephesians there. chapter 2. Um, because when we talk about being dead, like in one sense, that means we are absolutely incapable of bringing ourselves to life. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. Jesus was the only one who did that. That's why we need him. Um, but as far as we're concerned, we're dead in our sins, meaning we are dead to God. We're dead to the glory of God, dead to the beauty of God, dead to, to all that is good. Um, we're dead to that in the truest sense. Um, but even though we're dead in that way, it's like we're the walking dead in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, how do dead people act? Well, that's what Ephesians 2 says. And begin in verse 1 with me here. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And if we just, you know, the way some people misunderstand what we're saying, well, that means you can't make any choices, da-da-da-da, you know, it's like, mm, it's not what we're saying. Um, you can choose whatever you want. Yeah, you can, exactly. And what do we choose? Like you said, it says, the, it being dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, that means whichever way the world's going, that's the way we want to go. We follow it because we see it as valuable. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, pause. Everyone who's not a believer is directly or indirectly following Satan because that's who the prince of the power of the air is. Now, most people say, I'm not a devil worshiper. No, you might not be outwardly worshiping the devil, but if you are not following Jesus, then that's the only other option you have. Text says that following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then look at what he says. Among whom we all once lived. That's why I said it's like we're the walking dead. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. And this is what we did. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. So whatever our bodies craved, whatever our minds imagined, that's what we pursued. That's what we, was what we go after in our sin. We go after it wholeheartedly and the mind and were by nature. This is just who we are, children of wrath, meaning that, that's what we deserve is the wrath of God. Like we're not, we, we, we're not children of God by nature. We're children of wrath. We're, we're creatures who, who have rebelled against God and we daily, hourly, minute by minute prefer things other than God. And so that's why we're fitting to be called children of wrath. 
Like that's what such a life and a pursuit and a preference deserves is God's wrath. And again, he's talking here, look at the very end. Um, We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before God saves you, before he saves me, there is no difference between us and every other unbeliever. It's not until God intervenes that something changes. Before that, we are just as worthy of God's judgment and wrath as anyone. And we're under that until Jesus takes us out. Could you tell us about the lion? I love your lion story. But before (laughs) you do that, would it be safe to say the unbeliever can choose the kind of sin they want. They're free to choose the kind of sin and maybe how much they do. But they're not free to choose Jesus. Right. And so, so let, me, let me say a word about that, because this is where people are going to often get, get uh, tripped up a little bit with what we're trying to say. So um, I've got the screen here. To be a slave of sin means we always choose sin. This is not, be- now this is so important. This is not because we are forced to, but because we what? love to. We want to. Okay. So, so hear me out on this. Uh, and a lot of theologians have talked about this distinction, and if you want to jot this down, I don't have it on the screen, but these, these two different kinds of inability we've got to distinguish in our mind. You could call it physical inability would be one, and the other one would be moral inability. Physical inability and moral inability. The objection to what we're saying at this point, and I've heard it before, is people will say, how can God judge someone for doing something that they can't do? Uh, for, excuse me, for not doing something they, they can't help but do. Did I say that right? Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? I think, well, I can't do this. I can't choose God, and you're going to judge me for something I can't do. That doesn't seem just. That, that's the objection. So here, here's what I want to say. That would be right if it was physical inability. So here, here's what I mean. If a person is, uh, if, if God said, okay, I want you guys to jump across the Atlantic Ocean, and if you don't do it, I'm going to strike you in judgment. And we, we want to. We want to honor God, and we, all our motives are right, and we go running to the edge of the sand, and we jump, and we, you know, make it a few feet, and we flop into the water. And if God says, how dare you, I'm going to judge you for doing what you can't do, God's not going to do that, because that would be something we are physically incapable of doing, and no matter how much we want to do the right thing, and we try to please God, we're physically unable, and God is not going to judge someone for un- being unable to do what they're physically unable to do. So the difference here is moral inability. Moral inability is different. We've quoted it before, but look on the screen again, John 3, 19. This is moral inability. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, if someone prefers the light, that's a work carried out in God. That's something that God has done in intervention in our life. So if, my, if what's holding me back from Jesus is my love of sin, and my love of sin is so intense that I won't let it go because I absolutely uh, resist the thought, then I'm still accountable for that. Uh, if someone, you know, one other illustration would be if... Um, if a mom is having a hard time with, you know, her son and, and she's telling him to do something and the son, you know, clean your room, right? And the son is perfectly old enough to understand that. The son is perfectly capable physically of standing up and cleaning the room. But the child is just in a moment of pure rebellion and the child is like, no, I'm not going to do it. And in, in that moment, that child is fully capable of cleaning the room physically, but there's a moment where they're giving in and they're morally, they become absolutely resisting the, the thought of doing what is right. We are not physically incapable of choosing Christ, 
We are morally so in love with sin that we won't ever choose Christ, which therefore makes us morally unable. Thoughts on that? Like the lion. God, tell us about the lion. <laughs> I think he wants to hear about I liked, the lion. I like this story. This thing made sense to me when it, a couple decades ago when Mark started talking yeah, about it. Yeah, so, the so uh, th- this is from James Boyce, the, the great uh, preacher from Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian Church. He died, I think, in the year 2000, a friend of R.C. Sproul and others. Uh, James Boyce told this, and I've slightly tweaked it, but, but this is pretty much his. So a picture, you've you got two lions in cages. Have y'all, have y'all heard this before? I don't know if I've told this recently. They got two lions, one in each cage. And both of these lions are, are on the verge of starvation. They have not eaten in a long time. They're desperately hungry. And imagine that you were to take um, like oats, right? I guess horses would eat that or something. You take oats and you pour them in there with the lions. My guess is that both lions would smell the oats, very interested. They, would, they would, might even lick them and taste them. But of their own free choice, what are both lions going to choose to do? They're not going to eat the oats. Why? Because lions are carnivores. They don't perceive oats as actual edible food. They, they don't see it that way. So the, the lions just sit there. And so here the lion has edible food laying in front of it. And the lions, both of their own free choice, choose not to eat it because they don't perceive that as food. It, doesn't, it looks like bark or something. They're not going to eat this. And so imagine God supernaturally changes the nature of one of those lions and makes it an omnivore. Okay? Both lions are now still using free will. They're both choosing what they want. Lion A, who's still a carnivore, is choosing of its own free will to not eat life-saving oats because it doesn't perceive them as desirable or food. And it's going to starve to death right there of its own free choice, right? If God were to grant the opening of the eyes of the mind to the other lion, lion B, and give it the nature of an omnivore, guess what? As soon as that perception changes, that lion is going to devour the oats and save its life. At no moment in that story is either either lion having its will violated. Both lions are getting exactly what the lion chooses every moment, right? They're both choosing to, to not eat. But the moment God opens the eyes of one, God's in control, right, of the choice. When God opens the, the eyes of that lion, what happens? It freely and necessarily uh, chooses to embrace. I remember um, when I was in college, you know, I, I don't know if you want to call it, you know, obviously God's in control, God's, God's directing our steps. But um, I remember taking a, a history of Christianity class at the University of Georgia which is interesting taking it at a secular university because they're not teaching it from a perspective of faith. Um, they're constantly seeking to undermine uh, what we're learning, you know, our confidence in Scripture. And what was interesting, there was a couple of um, master students, because sometimes you'll have a class that can be geared to undergrad as well as a grad student, and the grad students just have a lot more work to do in that class. There was a couple of, of grad students in that class that were adamantly unchristian. But what was interesting is when we talked about basic Christian doctrine, they could explain technically the doctrine of justification by faith better than a lot of people in Christian churches. And you'd be like, well, well how is that? It, it's what you're saying. Like they, they can look at this doctrine. They can even tell you all about it, but then they're blind to the glory and the beauty and the life that's in it. Um, and so it, it was just a very vivid illustration um, of, of what you're talking about here. It's also, I think it's um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, where is it at? I'm not going to be able to find it. 1 Corinthians 2.14? 2.14, yes. Thank you. Um, Paul here, y'all, if, do we have that on the screen, by the way, by chance? I don't know that I do. All right, 2, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Y'all look at this. Some of you probably looked at this verse before, but think about... 
The, the full weight of what Paul's saying here, and this is why I say we want to linger in these texts. We want to get down in these texts. We want to soak in them. Um, look, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says the natural person, that's talking about the, the unspiritual person, someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, therefore an unsaved unbeliever. Okay, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So whatever the Spirit reveals, ultimately we know that's referring to the apostolic teaching, the Scriptures. They, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So they, they can see it. They can repeat what we say verbatim. They can construct, you know, Christian doctrine in a technical sense, but they are not able to understand them. So there's, there's a, like you said, physical moral. There, there's a, a physical mental understanding that you can have of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then there's a spiritual understanding that you have to have if you're going to be saved. Anybody can say, oh yeah, the Bible says if you believe in Jesus and don't trust in your own works, but trust in him alone, you'll be saved, you'll be justified. Anybody can say that. But in order to embrace that as your hope in life and death, you have to have something happen to you. So it's, it's more than just the mental capacity. Why, look at the last thing Paul says. They're not able to understand them because these things are spiritually discerned. And this spiritual discernment, which evidences itself in this love for the truth, this love for God, this love for, for the light rather than the darkness, that is what happens when you're born again. You cannot love the, the truth. You cannot love Jesus. I cannot be inclined to God, the, the things of God and the things that matter to God if I don't have that ability to have spiritual discernment. Mm -hmm. And that only comes when I'm born again and I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me to open my eyes to see things that I was otherwise blind to. And it, it really is a simple illustration, but you, you've heard it before. Try to describe colors to someone who has always been blind. They cannot appreciate it. They can have all the information in their head about what colors are and, you know, supposedly light shines and, and, and you know, depending on the type of light and what's there, like it's, you know, because my daughter, she's got these, you know, Jackson and Laura, they have these lights in their room that you can change all the colors and, you know, you watch the paint, you know, stuff on the wall and depending on the color, it looks, you know, completely different color, um, stuff like that. You have, you have no ability, if you've been blind from birth, like you can understand the technical aspects of that in terms of information, but you can't see it to appreciate appreciate it. And so when we're, when God regenerates us, when we're born again, it's like God gives us eyes to see things that we couldn't see. And now we're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. And like, once you see it, you can never be the same. This is why the new Testament uses sensory language mm -hmm. to describe conversion. Sensory language, tasting, seeing, mm -hmm. now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So, uh, you know, we've all heard this illustration, but Jonathan Edwards said, it's one thing to know cognitively that honey is sweet. Mm -hmm. Even if you've never had it, you can know. You can be convinced from 100 people telling you what it looks like and what it tastes like. Okay, I believe you. Honey is sweet. Is it the same as actually putting some on your tongue for the first time and now knowing through sense this tastes good, this is sweet? And so Jesus, for me, until I was 16... I knew all the Bible answers. I'd had you for Bible. Well, I think I'd had you some, a little bit. You knew me as a non-Christian. My, my, I had amazing parents, great church, school. And I had all the information. And it would touch my spiritual tongue, and it was bland. There was no 
taste for the beauty of it. And then when I was 16, for the first time in my life, the Bible suddenly tasted good. There was a sensory change. I don't know how to describe it. I desired it now for its own sake, not to pass a test or not to get approval from someone. I wanted to read it because I was meeting God when I read the text. This is a whole new thing. It was unbelievably different than everything up until I was 16. But suddenly I had taste buds to taste what was good. And that, that's something that comes as a result of the new birth. It's not the cause of the new birth. Right. It comes, that's what the new birth is. It's granting you new, new uh, taste and new sight. Yeah, in two minutes, could you turn back 20 pages to Romans 8, and I feel like these are as devastating to um, our own goodness. If you believe the, the country song, I believe all people are good, I think this will be <laughs> a pretty good uh, illustration that that might not be the case. Seven and eight. And there's four things here that describe the, every unbeliever. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Okay, so first of all, the unbeliever is hostile to God. Secondly, for it does not submit to God's law. So they will not submit to God's law. Thirdly, indeed, it cannot. Worse yet, right? They don't submit to God's law, but they can't. That's that moral, moral inability. inability. There we go. And then fourth, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. They can't please God. And so what a glorious thing today. If the Lord has regenerated your heart, that you and I today have the ability to please God only because he changed us from being dead in our transgressions and our sins to alive in Christ. Well, now that's one of the things I'll mention this briefly. You've heard it like we say this over and over again, but we have a lot of testimonies in this church of people who have experienced conversion in this way. Like you, you see the depravity, that inability. There's, I mean, we, we, we love like, you know, you're here because you love the teaching, you love the people, you love the emphasis, but there were folks who are, are now in love with this church and in love with what God's doing here because they, they're open to this. Like they were sitting here and they were bored with it. It was blah, 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 blah. That's all it was. I mean, that's what depravity does. You get bored with, with the truth. You get, you're not, there's nothing compelling about the truth um, to us. And again, like you said, and your, your story is what we've heard so many people in this church say. It's like when God gives new life, all of a sudden, God's not boring anymore. He's beautiful. He's compelling. He's he's. Um, you, you can't get away from him. You can't get enough of him. Yeah, so just on the screen, one last thing here. We'll wrap up in just a moment. Total depravity, uh, again, means moral inability, and that means these three things. Man cannot do the good. We saw that. Why? Because man cannot even desire the good. If you can't desire it, you can't do it. And number three, man cannot even understand the good. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, uh, it, it doesn't even make sense truly for the unregenerate. So this is, if you know the Lord, this is what the Lord saved you and I from. We were not doing the good. We were not desiring the good. We did not even understand truly the gospel. We may have had the, the words in our head, but we did not have a taste for those mm -hmm. truths. And so God grants us the understanding of our heart to see it as compelling. He gives us desires to incline towards it, which is the gift of faith, which yeah. we talk about. And then God prepares good works for us to walk in, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So God creates the good deeds for us to do as well. But all that is entirely of grace. From top to bottom, salvation is from grace. It's like Jonah said in the whale, right? In the fish, salvation is of the Lord. And so at the end of the day, we have to say, from top to bottom, my salvation is owing not 99.999% to God's grace. 
It is 100% grace from top to bottom. And that's what total depravity shows us. Jerry, can you close us? Yeah. Gracious Father, wouldn't we just ponder that for a second? It is so amazing um, that we know that by grace we have been saved through faith in Christ, the gift of faith that you gave us, the gift of grace that um, this undeserved favor, certainly being dead in our transgressions and our sins, we had no move, no way we could move toward you. We needed your regeneration, and you did it. And for that, we're um, just incredibly um, thankful for, we're, we're amazed at. Um, we have great awe of who you are, and, uh, and Lord, a, just a deep, deep love for our Savior. Um, for doing what we could not have done, for the great exchange that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. And you made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him, in Christ, now we have your righteousness. And for that, Father, we're so thankful. So, Lord, we pray that we would um, hold to these great truths and that they would change the way we operate, that we would live with a deeper humility to realize there is nothing good in us apart from Christ. Um, that Christ would say, apart from me, you can do nothing, that we would have uh, a deep thankfulness and that we would live this life um, aggressively for, this, for our Savior, um, recklessly even to uh, share others with all those who need the good news. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.